Jesus' name. Amen. Love by sacrifice. We live in a society that has love confusion. Uh, what is love? It's a big question. Uh, there's a book by D.A. Carson entitled The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God because there's so many angles to it. Uh, God is love, but we know that love is not God. In fact, love is a terrible God. Uh, there are some people who wrongly say, well, God is love. Wherever you see love in the world, well, that's God at work. And that is, in fact, a terrible way to have an understanding of God or love, for that matter. Some say love demands freedom of choice. But what does that even mean? In heaven, we will not be free to sin, and yet we will love God. And there will be free acts of love toward God, even though there will be no choice to sin. Heaven will be full of people who can't choose sin, yet fully love God. Does God love everyone the same? The Bible says that uh, we are as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And there's a particular nature of God's love. He loves his bride in a unique way. Consequently, husbands are to love their wives in unique ways than they love all other women in the world. Uh, Jordan would not be honored if I loved every one of you women in this room in the same way that I loved her. The call for me is to love my wife in a particular way because God's love is specific and particular and unique. How does God's love and His wrath and His justice go together? A lot of questions. Does sacrifice, sacrifice reveal love? Um, is it possible... To be fully known by God and fully loved by God. Uh, Genesis 22 is going to help us navigate some of these questions. There are a lot of questions, a lot of statements within those questions. And Genesis 22 is going to help us out. So if you would look with me, chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. A dreadful, dreadful command. Now we know God does not lie. The seed was promised, as we remember back in the book of Genesis, the seed, the offspring of Abraham was promised to come through Isaac, not through Ishmael. So what is God up to? What is he up to? Verse 2, it says, take your son, your only son, take your son, your only son, and offer him, the one you love, as a burnt offering. Now this is interesting, because we know that literally, Isaac is not Abraham's only son. He has two sons. He has Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and Ishmael. He has two sons. So a literal interpretation doesn't have the capacity to understand this verse. Now it's interesting, down through the ages, and specifically in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there was a movement uh, called the, the, the fundamentalist, fundamentalism. Uh, it actually has roots back in um, kind of a reaction to liberalism that came in the end of the 1900s, and the social gospel of people who believed that we are to take the Bible literally. We're not taking to take it figuratively. It, what does it say? What does it say? God says what he means and means what he says. And although they are very true, and we believe and affirm that the Bible is interpreted uh, actually from the words of God, verbal, plenary interpretation of the script, or understanding of the scriptures, that he inspired the very words that were written to us, to be, read the Bible accurately, it means that we have to read it with an understanding of genre. God is an incredible artist. He's an incredible writer. 
And he does not write in one specific genre. We, are, we, we stand in awe at, at authors who can write in many different genres. We live in a highly specialized world. And if you're an author, typically you write in one string. You write children's books. And that's what you write. Or you write historical novels. And that's what you write. Or you write nonfiction. That's what you write. Where do all these genres of literature and language come from? Well, they come from God himself. And as we look at the scriptures, we have all sorts of genres of literature. That's why when we look in, in the book of Song of Solomon, we see this beautiful poetry of a husband talking about his wife. And uh, the, the funny joke is, his wife really didn't have the neck of a giraffe. We can't read that correctly if we read it strictly literal. We have to understand the literary genius of God. And God, in this passage, is pointing us somewhere, because if we take these words literal, and, and a literal understanding, a strictly literal understanding, means taking words in their usual or most basic sense without understanding metaphor or allegory. But God, the great communicator, He speaks in all these different ways, and we have to understand allegory, metaphor, story, parable, to understand what God is actually saying to us. So the fact that the only son is emphasized in this passage, it tells us that there is a point beyond the point. We have to understand what he is saying when he so signifies that this son is the only son of Abraham. And so we know that he's talking about the child of the promise, Isaac, but he's also speaking to us about something else. He's teaching us there is a point. It is not literally true, but it is intentionally there. It is true but not literal. Get what I'm saying? Okay. There's a point. He's teaching. And we need to understand with our ears wide open and our hearts open to understand what he's saying. Verse 3, we see Abraham's response. We see confident obedience from Abraham. I would have several questions in this instance. Abraham does not. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood, for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. No questions asked, not one. He takes two young men and Isaac, and he actually takes the time to cut the wood that would burn the sacrifice. Has anybody ever chopped wood? Dan, the Lord has. You ever chopped wood? Okay, they didn't have like a wood splitter. <laughs> Okay, that would be nice. A wood splitter is great. We just got done wa watching Pioneer Quest, which is fantastic on Amazon Prime. If you have Amazon Prime, check it out. It's a great show. But they had to manually cut everything. I mean, just cut lumber. It's a hard task. And it's almost like adding insult to injury, saying, sacrifice your only son Isaac, and then here, you're going to have to cut the own wood, your own wood. You're going to have to go out and do this work. Abraham, no questions asked, does what's necessary to prepare the offering. He confidently walks in obedience. Verse 4 and 5, the story begins to unfold. We turn the page, the proverbial page, and we read on, in chapter 22, verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar that Abraham sent to his young men, said, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. I want you to specifically, let's, let's kind of like get our, our laser focus here. Look at the last words of this verse. He said, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Let's consider the supernatural faith of Abraham. 
He's told by God to sacrifice his son. He knows the promise of God. He knows the one in whom the seed is going to come. The offspring is going to come. It's going to happen through Isaac. And he tells the two men, the servants who went with him, to stay here. And the words that come out of his mouth are quite astounding. He says that I and the boy are going to go over here and worship. And what does he say? And come back to you. He has a sense from the beginning, a faith from the beginning, that God is going to do something here. That he's going to walk up that mountain with his son and he's going to walk back down that mountain with his son. He's not going to come back alone. And he says to the servants as much. He believes from the beginning that here God is going to provide. I and the boy are coming back. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7, 17 and 19 it says this. By faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises what it was in fact the act in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham believed that even if he was to slay his son and sacrifice his son Isaac, he believed that God was, was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. He was confident, I'm walking back with my boy. I'm not leaving him up on that mountain. God will provide. He will do something here. And if I have to take this knife, and I will do it, if I have to take this knife, and if I have to slay my son, I know that God will raise him from the dead, and we'll walk back down together. So we see Abraham has faith. He believes that God is going to do this, that God is going to provide. He had faith that he would. Verse 6 through 8, the page again turns. We see again the story deepen, the rabbit hole go a little deeper. And Abraham took his hand, took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took the hand, took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both went of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. In verse 6, the son carries on his own back the sacrificial wood that the father had laid upon him. In verse 7, Isaac asks the question, where's the lamb? In verse 8, Abraham says, God will provide. Now, I've got a son, two and a half. You've got children, many of you. Some of your children are grown. Some of you don't have children yet. But you can imagine what was going on. What are they thinking? Yes, God will provide, but what a strange scenario. God asking me to give my son? What, what's happening here? What is God up to? Why are we going to this mountain? All these years, uh, we've said it several weeks in a row, or several months in a row, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, no child. A receiver of promise from God that Sarah will conceive. We wait year in, year out. Sarah does not conceive. Finally, God's promise proves to be true. Fast forward several years and then God comes with this directive. How strange. Isn't it weird? It's just really odd. God, what are you up to? What are you doing this? Just strange. It sounds really, really strange. God, what is going on? He has the faith. He has faith, but he has knife, a knife in his hand. And he says to Isaac, 
God will provide. Here, friends, we get from this word, from this idea, the word providence. We talk about God's sovereignty. We talk about God's general rule that he has, in fact, decreed all things. And he sees all that he decrees. And he has even decreed to allow the enemy to try to thwart his purposes. But because God is sovereign, the purposes of the enemy work for the purposes of God. So nothing is chaotic. Nothing is out of line, out of order. And Satan's always causing havoc and wreaking havoc. But it's all in this subcategory of the decrees of God, God's decrees. But God's providence is another layer, another wrinkle to the truth of God's sovereignty. He is intentional. He's not disconnected from his decrees. He knows what he's up to. We don't just have a sovereign God who decrees all things. We have a sovereign Father who sees all that he decrees and he intentionally provides for his purposes in a tender and a loving way. Christians know God as Father, so we have a Father, not just a sovereign God to be dreadful of, but we have a Father who is caring over us. He is loving us and intentionally growing us. He's not maniacally up there with strings, as you've heard some people talk about God's sovereignty. But he is very intentional in his sovereign rule and reign. God's providence has this idea that God will see to it. Some of your versions say, well, God will see to it. When it says God will provide, anybody's version out there say God will see to it? Anybody? Okay. There's some versions that do, trust me. You look at it. That God will see to it. God will take care of. He will provide for his own command. He will provide. So he's he's got this thing under control. He's going to take care of us. And these words are uttered through faith, through the faith of Abraham to his son. Apparently, it's enough truth for Isaac. Isaac, we will see in a second, he is at peace with God's provision, even as he is tied up and laid upon the altar of sacrifice. The providence of God, the the peace that comes with knowing God will provide, apparently gives Isaac the resolve to trust his father and trust God to where he doesn't put up a fight. He's tied up and he's laid upon an altar and he's at peace. When you understand the providence of God, when you understand the provision of God, it brings unbelievable peace in the seas of chaos. When you know that God, remember when Michael Kelly came and preached last year and he preached, he talked about God will take care of me. God will take care of you. Have our lives not proved time and time again up to this point that God will take care of us? When you understand the providence of God, His Father, fatherly, sovereign rule and control over your life, it brings peace. And we're so quick to trust our will and our future provision over God's will and God's future provision over our lives. There's still this hint in us that we believe that our will is a little bit better. It's a little bit cleaner. It's got a little bit less bumps, bruises along the way. Our will certainly has less tears than God's will. Because we never want anything to go any other way than what we want. God has these purposes, and it's not disconnected from His providential loving, fatherly care. God will provide. Is there anything else, any other scenario that you know of that seems as chaotic as this? This this is, I mean, flesh and blood here, your children. If God doesn't provide, he's going to, even if he resurrects Isaac, Abraham's got to do something pretty graphic. I mean, it's just, I can't imagine. 
verse 9 and 10, you see Isaac's disposition. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Note the submission of Isaac. He does the will of his father. He was compliant. There's no back talk. It's in the passage. And you see the tension of Abraham. He knows God will provide. He picks up the knife. There's been another time that Abraham was faithful with a knife. Remember that? Pick up the knife. Genesis chapter 17. The covenant of circumcision. And here he is again, willing to be faithful with a knife to do what God has told him to do. There's a tension. He knows God will provide, and he picks up the knife. We live in tensions like this all the time, not knowing how God will provide, but he will. Being in a place of mystery, of wondering, God, what are you up to here? You know what you're doing here? Like, this doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like you're going to provide in this way. It feels like we're taking 12 steps back here. I, I didn't get that. Fill in the blank, whatever it is. It feels like you're sitting idle. It feels like you're... I'm, God, I'm active here, and you are... <laughs> what are you going to do something? Like, what's going on? <clears throat> so you know that God is going to provide somehow, but you're completely clueless. You just keep doing your part. You're just, okay, God, whatever you want me to do. Picks up the knife. And then we see some things revealed in the nature of sacrifice. God would provide somehow. Until he provides, he would obey. Verse 11 and 12 tell us about fear and sacrifice. What does sacrifice teach us? Verse 12. Verse 11, excuse me. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your, your son, your only son, from me. God stops Abraham. God does, in fact, provide. Don't do it. No, Abraham, don't do it. How thrilling it would have been to hear those words. Out of the silence, God speaks. All that's there is the fear in the eyes of the boy. And the terror in the eyes of the father. And God speaks out and says, No! Now I know that you fear me, that you fear God. Now I know. Now, this provides a question for us. Does it not? Now I know about God's knowledge. But what's going on here? God, don't, didn't you know what's going to happen? I mean, you just, Abraham seems to have this understanding that you will provide in the future. And then as you're speaking, as you're talking here, you're saying, now I know through observation of the events that unfold. And we know about God, that God doesn't learn, that He doesn't learn what tomorrow holds, but what we do or don't, do not do. The future is not unfolding to Him. He has declared the end from the beginning. We've seen the prophetic utterances over and over again through this book that speak to His future knowledge, to His, his foreordaining, his, his knowledge of the future, and His decrees over the future. But here we get this peculiar verse. So it's like a big, huh? 
Jordan and I were talking about this this week, sitting on the porch. And I was like, yeah, it's, I mean, it really, it's kind of a head-scratcher. But it's another non-literal statement. We can ask yet again, what's going on? Restated in this verse is another non-literal statement when it says, when Jesus says, he says, your only son from me. Your only son. Again, we cannot understand that literally. So what's going on? As Isaac was not Abraham's only son, this, now I know, this is not a statement about God's knowledge or lack thereof. God is teaching us something about the nature of sacrifice. This is the first time in it, this is the first time that we are introduced, although we are introduced to covenant and blood being spilled, this is the first time that we learn of sacrifice in this way, of substitution in this way in all of the scriptures. God will provide. So God is teaching us something about the nature of sacrifice. Sacrifice reveals something about the one who is making the sacrifice. And by God's statement... We get to learn what that is. Well, Abraham's sacrifice reveals that he had fear for God. But through the work of God, he had fear for God. He was going to obey God. He was actually going to take the knife to his son, fully believing that God would provide somehow, even if it was through the resurrection of his son. It reveals something. That's what sacrifice does. It reveals the nature. And this is how we know the heart of a person, what we're willing to sacrifice and we can ask the question, what do we value? And sometimes we talk about idolatry and what we value in life and what you can do without or what's more valuable to you, you or Jesus, and we begin to compare these things. We can begin to kind of freak out. Have you ever been in the, like, the idolatry freak out mode where it's like, oh my gosh, do I love my kids too much? Like, they're, oh my gosh, if I love my kids too much or if I love my fill-in-the-blank too much or if I love my new $25 yard sale mower too much, then God's going to make it explode in a fire, which almost happened. Um, have you ever been there? What about idolatry? As you do introspection in your life and you begin to question, okay, what are the areas that I have, have idols in our lives? And we do have idols in our lives. And we, we cling to those. And we want those. And we kind of pet those. But here's what I know about the people of God. For the believer, if you're a Christian in this room, Jesus is more precious to you than anything. If you have a new heart, here's what I know about you. You don't pray to your children. You pray to Jesus. Your kids may bring you in a moment to tears, but if you're walking with the Lord, there's no amount of crying that you can do like crying to Jesus. There's a joy that the Lord gives you that your kids, that your wife, that nobody can give you, and you've experienced it. There's moments of euphoria that I've had with the Lord, and I believe that you've had with the Lord as well, that you wouldn't take or wouldn't trade for anything. And I believe if you're a believer, if you've had a regenerated heart, you know that Jesus is the one thing that can't be taken from you. I could die today. And I would be taken from my family, but Jesus wouldn't. He wouldn't be. <clears throat> and that's a precious thing for believers. That anything we could lose, but we wouldn't lose, we can't lose Jesus. For the believer, Jesus is precious to us. Can you imagine your life without Jesus? Without the work of the Holy Spirit, without the Godhead? Not God as Father? What would your life be like? And if you answer, well, not that different, then you may need to ask some real hard questions. 
you don't know the Lord in this way, if you don't know Jesus in this way, knowing that He gives more joy, then ask those hard questions. But for the believer, Jesus is precious. Sacrifice reveals the heart. And if you're a believer in this room, if it ever came down to that horrific situation that we all dread being in a nation or society where, say, trust, denounce Jesus or die, you know what? The Holy Spirit would give you the grace to be able to do that. You love Him. You love Him. But God, in fact, does intervene. He does provide. And we see this powerful, humble provision by seeing the first instance of substitution in the Scripture. Provision in the Scripture. Provision through substitution. Look at verse 13 and 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering. Look what it says. Instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Provision through sacrifice. At just the right moment. On just the right mountain. In exactly and just the right thicket. God provides a sacrifice with its head underneath the thorns. He provides a sacrifice whose head is underneath and caught in the thorns. Instead of his son, Isaac went free because there was a substitute sacrifice. A sacrifice had to be made because God had declared to sacrifice his son. And a sacrifice was in fact made through the ram being sacrificed. And this is the first example. Blood was spilled. Abraham declares again, the Lord will provide and on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now we should be thinking as we hear all that's in this passage, what is the point beyond the point? We've been looking at this just week in and week out and seeing the treasures of the gospel in the book of Genesis. The provision of God. The folly of humanity and the goodness of God. We've seen this. How God comes to rescue and save sinners. And this passage, because we have these non-literal statements, we have this teaching narrative of this true event, we, we, we are compelled to look forward as we always do. And we ought to be thinking about Jesus. We ought to be thinking about the mount in which the Lord did provide. And it wasn't just a ram, it was a person. We should be thinking about Jesus, the true and better ram caught in the thicket. Jesus, the true and better. Tim Keller unearthed a great old passage about Jesus being the true and better of everything in the Old Testament. It's uh, unaccredited. Nobody knows where this came from, but Keller found it, so we can just describe it to him because he probably wrote it anyways. <laughs> Jesus, the true and better. Here's what he says. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who is not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, Now I know that you fear me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and, with, and sacrificing him and say, Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Sacrifice reveals love. And behold, behold, behold the work of the Trinity. Jesus was the only Son of the Father, 
who willingly obeyed both in his incarnation and his perfect life. He willingly submitted to his heavenly Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, even to the point of death, death on the cross. Like Isaac, he carried a cross on his own back. But unlike Isaac, Jesus was the substitute sacrifice upon whom was a thicket of thorns. God the Father did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, that we, like Isaac, would be free. By Abraham's sacrifice, we know that He feared God. By God's sacrifice of His Son, we know what? That He loves us. That He loves us, 1 John 3.16. As Andy said, the other John 3.16, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is teaching us about the nature of true love. About the nature of true love. The nature of His love. God loves sinners. Not the righteous sinners. Sinners who deserve to bleed. Sinners who deserve their blood to be spilled. Sinners who deserve the judgment of God to come upon them. It's one thing to talk about the nature of human father's son loving a human son. But here's what's so crazy about God's love and why it's so different than ours. People have told me, and my mother and father, and I understand where they're coming from, and I've heard this, and we've, I think I've even said this here on a Sunday morning before, you'll know about the love of God when you have children yourself. You ever said that or heard that? Okay? And while that's true... It's not true enough. Because there's a condition by which I love my son. What's the condition? He's mine. He's my son. I don't love your kids. <laughs> I love my kid. Now, I do love your kids, but not the same way you love... Anybody here love my son like you love your kids? Certainly there's a condition. There's a major condition. He's my son. But God's love doesn't go forth to His kids. His love goes forth to His enemies. He didn't sacrifice for His kids. He sacrificed His Son for His enemies. That's a love that fathers you and I can't touch. God's affection was set upon you not when you were cleaning yourself up. Not when you were pushing your way outside of humanity and beautifying yourself and getting God's attention. God's love was set upon you when you were in the gutter. Both religious gutter or moral decay gutter. His love went forth for sinners, for His enemies. And this is the nature of substitution. That Jesus Himself comes, the true lamb, the true ram caught in the thicket. And he dies not for an innocent son. He doesn't die in the place of an innocent boy. He dies in the place of guilty sinners. Because God's love sent forth His Son to seek and to save that which is lost. To die for the very ones who sinned against Him. The Son, Jesus Christ, comes to take the punishment of those who sinned against Him. And He did it compliantly. He did it willingly. 
This is the nature of love. And earth does not know love like this. It only comes from above. And all lesser stories of love find its roots in this love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, this is huge. What is love? Love is not unconditional affirmation. Love is not radical acceptance. Love is sacrifice. And there is no sacrifice that we in this world could do for God, enough sacrifice that we could do for God to earn our seat at His table. Only God can sacrifice in such a way that made sinners sons. In fact, that is the nature of substitution. Instead of His Son, at the end of verse 13, this is God's love. He loves sinners. And that is good news. That is good news. You know, when we go to the world, oh, Westboro Baptist folks, they get it all wacky, weirdo stuff. God loves those whom He's wrathful towards. And it's a disservice to tell people to not flee from the judgment to come, but it's also a disservice to people to not say to them, God loves sinners. He, if you're a sinner, you qualify. He loves you. And we point to that love. And we tell them about Jesus' substitute sacrifice. And we pray that the Holy Spirit works, that they would open their eyes to see that love. And many never will. And they'll reject it as nonsense. But there's going to be some, like you in this room, who see it, and they experience a love like they've never experienced before. God is in fact teaching in this passage. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. In fact, he knew for certain what he was going to do on that mount that shall be provided. And he was giving us, early in Genesis, a picture of it. So how do we know? God teaches us. We learn things by sacrifice, and we can learn of God's love for us in Christ. Verse 15 through 19, the bow kind of gets put on it. Things get tidied up, wrapped up. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply, multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. Verse 16 and 18, it says, Because you have done this, this is certainty through sacrifice. Because he did this, this will surely happen. The imperfect Abraham obeyed God. And God responded by reaffirming the covenant that he had previously made with Abraham. In verse 18, offspring, in the offspring shall all the nations of the earth shall be blessed will come. And this offspring would be who? Who is this offspring singular? Not offsprings. Who is this offspring on whom? would be crucified, would be killed, would be provided on the, on the mount of the Lord that shall, shall be provided. Who is this offspring? 
Sunday school answer. Kids, who has this offspring? Colin, who is it? Jesus. Jesus will be provided on the mount that the Lord shall provide. Galatians 3.8 says this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel preached, friends. It's all over the place. It's the point. And we get to know this Jesus personally. So believer, this is your invitation. Andy, team, you guys can come up. For the believer, your invitation is to enjoy God. Get to enjoy, sing, think about these words. And just enjoy them. Just enjoy the Lord as your strength. Be strengthened as you give glory to the Lord. Abraham was strengthened as he gave glory to God. You be strengthened as you give glory to God. Sing these words from the heart. God, thank you that instead of me, Jesus died. For the non-believer, if you're here in the room, your invitation is one of repentance and faith. And this is the truth. Without a substitute sacrifice, God's judgment falls on people. And so, let that hover a bit. That's a reality, folks, really, out there. The people that you live with, work with, live by, friends with, play soccer with, go to school with. Without a substitute sacrifice, God's judgment comes upon them. And so we have a mission to tell them about the love of God. They can escape the wrath to come. And non-believer, if you're in this morning, if you've never been changed, if you've never been born again, never repented of your sins and trust in Jesus, you have an opportunity to do that. And how you do that is simply responding to God's work in your life. You say, God, I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. I deserve nothing from you. But thank you that you provided Jesus. I believe in his life, death, and resurrection. You don't have to say it perfect. You don't even have to say it genuine enough. It's you have faith, express it. God, I'm in. I, Cody came up and was converted a couple years ago. I said, just tell Jesus, like, save me. He said, screamed out, Jesus, save me. And he did. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. It's just a privilege. Help us to sing, uh, to enjoy you. For those that are believers in the room, help us to just feel the weight of fresh and anew, week in, week out. Like, just, just, Holy Spirit, just beat this into our heads continually, the truth of the gospel of Jesus, the wonderful true ram caught in the thicket sacrifice for us if we're not believer in this room I pray that they would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus stop living their selfish life be convicted I pray you convict them of their sins and that they would repent they would tell you they're sorry that they were wrong and they would turn to you and say God you're right and I believe in Jesus Holy Spirit do that in Jesus name Amen. Let's worship.